Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. That which we focus our imaginations on, Tom, is what we manifest in this realm. That's the secret. That's the deal, right? Human beings are manifesting machines, and we manifest either consciously or unconsciously. But we manifest, right? We manifest. It's what we do. Today's brown print is one that belongs to a cultural icon, a personal hero of mine as well. But from Roots to Star Trek and Reading Rainbow in between, if you've seen LeVar Burton in any role, I know you're more than likely inspired. Because when you break it all down, he's a great storyteller. And there is nothing that inspires people more than a good story. So sit back and relax and listen to the brown print of LeVar Burton. First and foremost, I'm just a fan, and I'm so honored that you decided to do this uh, with us, so it's great. So I would love to really honestly talk to you about your life, where you are, um, and then from that, I'm sure there'll be so many so many gems that'll be dropped, so it'll be great. Uh, I start off by saying I, you're a huge sports fan, I think, I, mm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Are you... Are you really? I, I was mm. on your Twitter. I was on your Twitter page and I saw you. You're mad at ESPN and Dana White and UFC. Why were you mad at them? What happened? Because uh, uh, I bought the fight um, <laughs> and I couldn't get in. Once the prelims were over, I got locked out of the of the broadcast of the main events. And um, and I was I, I'd had a couple of cocktails. <laughs> No judgment here. I do enjoy a cocktail. <laughs> but it was it was frustrating, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it eventually got cleared up, but I I did miss uh, three of the prelims. But it did it did come. It got it. I I got service in time to see the McGregor fight, which is what I really wanted to see. Yeah, and um, and it was uh, it was good to see him get his uh, ass. Yes, it, refreshing, right? You're like just yeah, to knock him over you. He's, yeah. Yeah, but he's you know what? But then he won me over by how classy he was in defeat. He really, he really um, revealed a side of him that I was surprised by, quite frankly. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. why I was surprised, but he was a real gentleman about it. And he was a real gracious loser in defeat. Mm-hmm. And we need, obviously, we need more examples of that in, in, in culture these days. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm so. I, I will say I'm surprised, but then not surprised because I do believe a lot of the bravado and what they show is what the UFC wants, right? They The last yeah. biggest star they had, they had Ronda Rousey, who was huge for a minute, and then obviously McGregor. He, mm. they, they build you, you know, to make you yeah. do the things and right. upset people. But with that being said, let's start off um, with childhood. I, I read you were born in Germany, but primarily grew up in Sacramento. Is that true? Mm. That is true. I, I, I grew up as a as a young Black child um, in <laughs> California. But we went back, we went back to Germany um, for another tour of duty when I was in the third and the fourth grade. So that's the, that's the trip that I really remember. I have memories 
of being in Germany on that tour of duty and, um, you know, living in a foreign country and what that was like. And I'm sure that it ignited my lust for travel, which I talk to me about a young black kid in Germany. How did you experience it? How did you see Germany? Well, I was mostly, you know, with other American kids living on base. We lived what they call on the economy when we first got there. Um, so um, oh, the majority, 90% of my experiences were, you know, isolated in that we were on the base. So I was interacting with other kids, kids, you know, from different parts of the country um, and even, you know, different parts of the world. So it was it was really pretty normal. Um, hmm. One of the things that stands out to this day for me is every Saturday morning, we would all gather, we'd have a cardboard box with all of our comic books in it, and we would go to each apartment block, four-story apartment blocks. You'd go up the, the one stairwell and, and then start at the top and then go down and hit each floor and trade comic books, right? Because mm. uh, a, a comic book that you hadn't read was a new comic book for you. And supplies of these things coming over from the States wasn't really regular. It's not like you could go to the corner store and get the latest edition of Fantastic Four or something like that, right? So um, that was a, a, a really memorable part of the experience for me, being a reader and having you know, comic books at that time in my life were you know, very important to me. Um, and I love that we had an economy, an established economy for circulating those books and keeping them in circulation for, uh, for everybody, you know, for those who were just arriving and, and those who were leaving, obviously left all of their comic books, you know, in the, in the, in the pool. It was a precursor to the little free library, you know. Um, how do you feel that experience, looking back on it now, helped shape you? Is there any connection to your career and the life that you've lived just with that experience, the free economy to share and trade, if you will, comic, book, comic books, to make sure you read them with your friends? There's another experience that, that relates directly to what I do now. My third grade teacher was a woman named Mrs. Twig. And Mrs. Twig um, used to like to go occasionally make herself a cup of tea after lunch. And she would always um, put me in front of the class with a book because I was the best reader in the third grade. And um, outside of somebody in my family, Mrs. Twig was the first person to see me, which is to say to recognize that I had a talent. That I, there was something that I excelled at, and, and she lifted me up in that way and encouraged me. To this day, reading aloud is one of my favorite ways to tell stories. Um, and it started for me in earnest in the third grade at Hanau American Elementary. How amazing is that story? And and not that it's it's unique in the way because it's your experience, but so many people, especially young black people that I know, um, 
we have started reading uh, the church program. That's what I used to do. Mm-hmm. I would get up mm-hmm. when I was seven years old. I couldn't pronounce all the words, and my grandmother right. would sit in the front seat and, and walk me through the big words that I didn't know. But that became my love of reading and my ability to speak publicly. I I wonder, as you leave and go back to the States, mm-hmm. was there a feeling of relief, excitement. I'm pretty sure you had to pick that up from your family, your parents. Well, my parents were, were in the process of uh, their, their relationship was uh, imploding. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, we came back home, uh, a fractured family. And, um, and, and that, was, that was a little scary. Um, it was a little scary. However, you know, um, my mom excelled at being a single parent and working full time and, and, and raising us, put us through all three of us through Catholic schools, made sure that we had the best education imaginable. She was a, a, a teacher, um, an English teacher, a high school English teacher. So she knew that the best education available in California was in parochial schools. So um, that's why I was baptized a Catholic. And that's, and, and I, and that's a large part of the reason why I entered the Catholic seminary um, when I did, because I was sort of steeped in that, that religious tradition, um, as opposed to the religious tradition that she grew up in. Um, my grandmother was a Pentecostalist Baptist. So, um, so we really departed from that tradition, but mostly, solely, really, because of the educational advantages. How well known is it that you were in seminary? Is, is that a, a just, because I find that so interesting. And then you, from my understanding, started to read more and developed um, more of a hunger for other religions, mm-hmm. and it taught mm-hmm. you more. Mm-hmm. Is that well known that you were in seminary, perhaps one day with the thought of being a priest? I, 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 I talk about it from time to time. I mean, it's not, nothing, that I, nothing that I hide. Um, it's nothing I'm ashamed of. Um, even throughout the, the troubles with um, mm-hmm. pedophilia in the church, I, I am still enormously proud of the education that I received from the Catholics and, Why? and always will be. Why am I proud of that education? Mm-hmm. Because as my mother said, education is the leveler of the playing field, right? My mother had dreams for me and expectations that um, were all around me being able to reach my highest potential in life. And as she saw it, the best education she could hardly afford was the key. It was the building block to that. I mean, first there was home training and then there was schooling, right? And um, under the tutelage of the Catholics, I went to Catholic school from, let's see, first and second grade. Then we went to Germany and I you know, went to Hanau American Elementary. We came home and, and I went through Catholic school from late fourth through eighth grade, and then I entered St. Pius 
uh, when I was 13. So they really helped me form and informed in a huge way the beginnings of my worldview. And then when I, I, I reached a certain age and, and began reading, um, well, I, I had a, a, a teacher in my sophomore year at St. Pius, um, who was, he taught all my favorite subjects. He was the English teacher. He was also the drama coach and he taught philosophy. And those were, those were my three favorite subjects. And Lee Bartlett was his name. Lee had me reading like Lao Tzu, um, Kierkegaard, uh, Heidegger, uh, Camus, and he just exploded um, my narrow worldview at the time. And, and out of that came this hunger, this real desire to search for the truth, because the truth as I understood it was really beginning to shift, right? Um, I, I, I wasn't seeing um, the Catholic faith in specifically or religion in general as, um, as the necessary answer to the questions I was asking. So I was eager to get out there in the world and, and, and seek out those answers for myself. Because up until that point, I had uh, just uh, accepted and adopted those things that were taught to me. And once I started exercising some discernment and having questions that they didn't necessarily have answers for, mm -hmm. um, and in fact, were, were really not all that thrilled with the questions I was asking, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I became even more determined to seek out truth on my own terms for myself. Mm. Um, but the education that I got and the, 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 the training in critical thinking and reasoning was absolutely critical to the process of breaking away from the church and finding my own way in life. Uh, seeking the truth for your own self. That was beautiful. I ask, and I, this did not fall short on me, English, drama, and philosophy, your favorite subjects. And one yeah. teacher taught all of those. Yeah. So with that, with that being said, let's, let's talk about the drama aspect of that. Um, mm -hmm. Because you are known for many, for many reasons, but as an actor, mm -hmm. when did you, or did, did it come to you? This is it. I want to be an actor right away. When did you know? Well, when I decided not to become a priest, right? Really? Yeah. Wait, so wait, I'm sorry. I want to make sure I understand. When what? you decided not to become a priest, you then decided you were going to be an actor? You just, it was an automatic switch or you're saying there automatic, was? It wasn't automatic, but I had made the decision that I know that the, the priesthood is not for me. Um, I stayed at St. Pius to graduate. So I stayed an additional two years uh, after I made that decision. In the course of those two years, I began looking for, so what am, am I going to do? I had decided to become a priest when I was eight years old. And, uh, and, and, and so the question became, well, now what? Right? And at that time, I had, I had been bit by the performing arts. Bar. We had a really strong theater department at St. Pius. And um, it was one of those bathroom moments, you know, where I'm standing in the mirror and really having one of those heart-to-heart -heart conversations with myself. And, and the question was, so what are you going to do? 
what are you good at, right? And um, the answer came immediately. Um, theater, acting. And I thought, okay, this is, this, is, this is something I can do. And once I made that decision, then I poured everything I had into that goal and graduated from St. Pius in 74 with a full scholarship to USC, the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And as a sophomore in my second year, I auditioned for Roots. Now, the funny thing for me is, is that my junior year at St. Pius, the summer between my junior and senior year, I took a cross-country trip with some friends of mine and one of the priests, Father Vic McAvoy, he was our driver's ed teacher. So um, <laughs> he, uh, he used to take some students on long, long trips during the summer break. And we went from coast to coast, from California to New York and back again. And the main impetus for me was to get to the Imperial Theater in New York and see mm -hmm. Ben Marie in Pitt. Mm -hmm. And um, we got there. I went and I bought a box seat, had my program. Um, after the show, I, I waited at the backstage door for two hours for Mr. Vereen to come down. And when he finally did, I, he signed my program. We took a Polaroid picture um, and I, I shook his hand. I said, Mr. Vereen, my name is LeVar Burton and I hope to work with you one day. That was 1973. And I got the role of Punta Quinte in May of 1976. That was summer of 73 to the spring of 76 um, before that dream made manifest. Talk about manifestation was exactly what I was about to say. Because yeah. you knew, you knew, I hope to work with you someday. And you knew. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I was, <laughs> that certainty uh, came at least in part from naivete, but it was also a burning desire that, that fueled it. So it was equal parts. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, mm -hmm. And my passion was genuine. Mm -hmm. My love for, for what I had chosen as my life's pursuit came honest. I came honestly by it. And I really believe that if, if you are able to identify what your gift is, I believe everybody's got a gift, right? Everybody has come here in the body, in, in whatever lifetime you are aware of. <laughs> if you can identify what your gift is, what it is you came here to do, how it is that you came here to serve, because service is what this is about. You can identify your contribution and, and pursue that with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind. The universe will support that. But you've got to be absolutely sure. You need to know. You need to have that knowingness about yourself, right? Not wishing, you know, that you could do it. You have to know that, yes, this is for me, that all of the data points line up between your desire and your reality. I, and yeah. when you do that, um, yeah. the way sort of gets made ready. Now, granted, I am blessed beyond measure, you know. Um, Roos was my first professional audition. That rarely 
happens that in you know in the first job you have um you're part of a piece of entertainment that that shocks the world right um but i have come to understand that that is a part of my destiny path and i've been able to see while looking back at the trajectory of my life how all of these incidents and and um um and events, milestone events in my life have all pointed me in the direction of where I stand in this now moment. It's all been leading up to this. I feel that in my spirit. As you say it, I feel it. We, I feel as if you know when you have a gift, just as you yeah. said, and you can use it for good or use it for bad. But yes. the ultimate goal is to help other people that's yes. all it is is this service be of service that's right it's yeah. not to keep it we have to share it and you have been able to do that in so many ways mm-hmm. obviously that's unheard of that your very first audition becomes this this groundbreaking historical piece of work and and mm-hmm. you're manifesting it but it was supposed to happen that way i do believe that mm-hmm. how after that success, after that notoriety, because you were, I believe you said a sophomore when you got the audition at USC. Were you a mm-hmm. sophomore? I was, yeah. Uh, I was. How, I how roots when I was uh, 19. Okay, so then how do you move on from that? There are so many people today, even actors listening, they get that one shot and you never hear from them again. And it's not because, and I'm not going to say they did something wrong. I couldn't even imagine the level of notoriety and how to handle that in a way that's humbling and moving yeah. forward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Roots was a genuine seminal experience in my life, not just because it launched my career, but it launched me on the path of self-discovery. Mm. Everything that happened in my life after Roots was really about adjusting to my new reality and being able to 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 have that notoriety while maintaining my center and that was a process that is still ongoing right um because i don't think we're ever really done as human beings that we are here to learn and grow as well as give. And my process has been about finding my balance in the midst of, um, of having grown up literally um, in the spotlight, which is not easy. Uh, I, it was easier then than it is now. I would not want to be like my daughter is launching her career in this age of social media and cameras mm. everywhere. And, you know, as a, as a kid who, you know, was on the cover of Time magazine at, at the age of 19, uh, I went through changes. I had to go through changes, right? I had to go through changes in order to appreciate the gift that I had been given, right? Um, so it's a process. We are always, as human beings, in process. And I think the thing that I am most proud of is having understood rather early on that 
if I was to have a career that involved any sort of longevity, mm-hmm. then I had to learn how to be open to the changes that would inevitably be a part of my life. I had to learn, I had to learn, I had to discover a process that worked for me. What do you mean by being open to the changes? What does that look like? Well, you know, life will bring changes, you know, and and we have no control over the curveballs that life throws us. What we do have control over is how we respond. It's not what happens to you that determines who you are. It's how you respond to that which happens to you that determines the nature of your character. You feel me? Mm-hmm. How you said earlier, you were won over in the way in which Conor McGregor was gracious in defeat. Yeah. How he responded. That, he responded that means a lot. to that circumstance. Look at the way Trump responded to a similar circumstance of defeat. That was absolute horrible modeling. And when I think of, of what the presidency used to mean to me and, and, and how he has defiled it, um, especially for kids, especially for young kids who are so impressionable. But, you know, uh, there's a, a current coup going on in, in Myanmar. And I'm pretty certain that they were emboldened by January 6th mm-hmm. at the Capitol over yeah. here. So these things matter, right? Having that man in that high place has been so detrimental. We will be digging our way out of this for years, years. Culture. I. I agree. I, I, I agree. And in that same vein, and I'll try to tie the two because I think when I think of Roots, I think of the work that you've been a part of. We'll talk about Cicely Tyson. May she rest in mm. peace. Mm. Um, when I think about how gracious and how eloquent black and brown people are who have platforms, mm. I do appreciate the way that we respond. But there is a time that we can respond with straight talk, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the ability to say that isn't right. And mm-hmm. what I have watched during this time, especially during this, that past presidency, mm-hmm. we were more emboldened as they became more emboldened mm-hmm. to say that this is just not fair. Mm-hmm. To me, someone with your platform, did you feel obligated to speak loud and proud about what wasn't right? Mm-hmm. Or was there ever this fear of I may not work again or what's going to happen when things go back to normal? I'm old enough to believe that I have earned the right to speak <laughs> my piece. I'm serious. I know. I'm serious. I'm and an you elder. have. I'm an elder. And you have. And you I'll have. Be, I'll be turning 64 in a couple of weeks. Black don't see, crack. Side here's note. the thing. There was never, Carrie, a time in my life where Cicely Tyson wasn't. I just assumed she would always be here. And her passing hit me hard because it defied my expectations that she would 
always be here because she has always been here. So there's an urgency inside of me now to connect with my other elders. I called Leslie, I spoke to Leslie Uggams just an hour or so ago, mm -hmm. just to let her know how much I love her and appreciate the part she has played in my becoming the man that I am. And, and in turn, I need to turn around and offer the value of whatever experience and wisdom I have to those who are coming up because that was extended to me. My first day as a professional actor, Cicely Tyson played my mother, Dr. Maya Angelou played my grandmother. Now I'm from a family of strong black women. And so I felt comfortable in their presence and yet <laughs> scared shitless because they were so much larger than life but they took me under their wing. Lou Gossett invited me to his house in Malibu when I met him. We came home from seven weeks on location in Savannah, Georgia, and, and the first thing Lou did was pack a bag, come spend a couple of nights with me so Fiddler and Kunta can get to know each other. They schooled me, my entire professional ethic, my work ethic was formed and formulated in those seven, eight weeks in Georgia. That's powerful. It is powerful. It is powerful. It's Black History Month, and um, I saw you tweet, this is the cringeworthy time when the corporations try to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ...do something. Mm -hmm. some, some, mm -hmm. I, call it, I call it corporate social justice. Black History Month means what? To you to the culture, or what should it mean? First of all, Black History Month is every month for, for us, but what should it mean? It's a double-edged sword for me, Black History Month, because once again, in the celebration of who we are and what we've brought to the table, we are still simultaneously being marginalized. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a backhanded, compliment, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. However, it is an opportunity to focus on how we have built this thing for free, mm -hmm. this nation. And I think that now we are in an era where it's really important for Black History Month to to really be about the education of white America. Because as you said, we celebrate ourselves all the time. And it's, 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 it's great to have our focus here, right? But this really needs to be about educating white people about who we are and what we have contributed and why we are so deserving of the sense of social justice that we have been crying out for for 400 years. We built this shit. For free. For free. And you 
still won't acknowledge that there is such a thing as white privilege and systemic racism. Everything in this country, everything in this culture stems from racism. This country was founded on it. This country thrives on it. So to continue to deny us and gaslight us, right, is infuriating. It's insulting to our intelligence. It's insulting to our our presence and purpose. Our presence and our purpose. It's insulting to our presence and our purpose. Right. And our contributions. Absolutely. Mm. So, we're tired. You know? We're tired. We're tired of in these conversations being given the okie doke. And that's what I meant when I tweeted, here we go with, you know, the awkward, mm-hmm. you know, cringeworthy gestures by corporate America, because it's nothing but the okie doke, right? It's the same during Pride Month. Sure. Right? Same. It's the, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Giving lip service to, but people were in the streets this summer. And they were in the streets because enough is enough. And when, not that there weren't white people that were a part of the civil rights movement, there were, but there were many more white allies, a much larger percentage of white allies in the streets this summer, which indicates to me that we are achieving, we are reaching critical mass, right? Enough awareness in the in the white population that this injustice is an everyday part of our lives. And holy moly, I've never seen it before because that's a part of my privilege. I, privilege to me is never having to worry about it, never having to concern yourself about it, right? And for the most mm-hmm. part, white people just don't think about what it is like being a black person in America and the stress that we are constantly under but they're beginning to see. They're beginning to, to be faced with irrefutable evidence, anecdotal evidence, and you, and, and you can't deny that. They have tried, just like they are trying to gaslight us about the serious nature of the crimes that were committed on January 6th. That shit was whack. <laughs> they need to be in jail. Let's they, move there on. There has to be accountability. Absolutely. We can't have justice without any accountability. We can't have justice without accountability. We need a truth and, and reconciliation process just like they had in South Africa. Because it worked. Yeah. Because it's it served as a reset. And we need know, a reset. We, we need, need a reset. reset. We need a reset. Amen. We need a reset. reset. I I asked you this earlier and you said, I have earned the right. I look back on your career. You have absolutely have earned the right to use your platform to say what you say and speak so eloquently, but honestly and passionately um, about the state of where we are as black and brown people, as America, as what's happening in this country. But the reason I asked the question about, do you ever worry? Because I talk to a lot of actors who are 
who are on the fence. They want to be mm-hmm. bold and they and they sometimes say what they have to say. And these are working actors, but there mm-hmm. is a um an institutional, if not um um they've been trained to not mm-hmm. speak up because the mm-hmm. mentality is be careful. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this is you're in a rarefied air and mm-hmm. you say the wrong thing. That is it. You're done in this business. How would you encourage others? I have five minutes with you. How would you enco- encourage others? I mean, I'm talking about working actors. I'm not talking about yeah. people who just got in the business, but this is for right. people who just got in the business, too. How do you encourage them to one? As they are living this genuine passion, I presume that they are actually genuinely passionate about what they're doing. But there is always this, especially for us brown folks, this other side where we have to acknowledge what is wrong. We have to. Otherwise, we're killing ourselves on the inside. How do you encourage them to keep doing that? It all goes back to, for me, what is your purpose? Mm. Why are you here? Is it simply to entertain? You know, Ruth showed me that it was possible to entertain, yes, but to do more than entertain, right? To educate, to enlighten, to uplift. Right. So I know who I am and why I'm here. And I'm and and. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not fulfilling my purpose. Now, everybody has a different purpose and and it's it may not be for everybody to. To be as loud Mm. and as definitively militant as I am, or let, let me take that word back militant because it just has a lot of baggage as as definitively insistent as i am about address about talking about and addressing the systemic inequalities that exist in this society that's a part of my destiny and i believe that that from roots to star trek and reading rainbow in between you know there's Kunta here, there's Jordy there, and there's Lavar in the middle. And this and 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 as I look at the miracle that is it, that is my life, Carrie. I can't help but notice. There's a plan here. What my plan? My plan was to move to Los Angeles, go to USC, graduate with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in drama, and move to New York and hustle my way onto the stage, right? Following the footsteps of Ben Vereen. There was a different plan afoot. And 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 I say to young people all the time, you've got to have a plan, but you've got to be flexible because, you know, it, it may not work out exactly as you planned it. But you've got, and so you've got to be ready for the shifts that are inevitably going to come. You've got to be flexible. So my, it's not like, it's not that I'm, I'm not concerned. I just don't let that concern paralyze me into non-action. I'm aware of the risks, but I know how I would feel about myself if I didn't take those risks. And at the end of the day, I've got to live with me. And my integrity is more important to me than almost anything in my life. You found your purpose. I have. And I found it early. I'm I'm really lucky really blessed in that regard. I found it early because I was willing to take the step that's in front of me. I say all the time, take the step that's in front of you. The next step will reveal itself. Walking is a controlled fall, right? And life is very much like walking. 
you've got to take that step. The other step, the, you, we have, we, as human beings, we, we, ha we have a natural fear of falling on our faces. That's why we walk so well, because if, if you don't do it right, you're going to fall on your face, right? So if we can just not worry about the end of the road, be focused on the here and now. Take the step that's right in front of you. Mm. And when you're finished with that step, that other leg is going to swing out, and so will the next step on your journey. I believe that to be true. I believe it to be true. LeVar Burden, thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely amazing and giving us some of your time. I know you're a busy man. We will also talk about your podcast. I saw new episodes are launching today. Yes, yes, yes. Um, LeVar Burton Reads, season eight. Um, I love doing the show. It has really, it's, it's, it's been such a big part of my life during this pandemic. Um, we, we, we try and, and keep it sparse and simple. Yeah. You know? um, and let the story do the work. It's really, it's really about, you know, making the story accessible. And, you know, reading aloud is a performance piece because every time you do that, it's going to be different, even if you're reading the same story, right? So um, I, just, I, I just simply love it. I love doing it. And the idea that it, it has, uh, that it can bring something to the lives of other people is just, it's, that's, that's delicious. Yeah, it is. Especially having this relationship with the generation that grew up on reading Rainbow. And another reason that I'm doing the show is because I, I know that a lot of you have gotten away from the habit of reading for pleasure. Yes. And I'm trying to remind you how important it is to live in that imaginative space. Mm -hmm. Because we are leaving you a shit show of problems that you will need to solve. And chief among your skill sets will be your imaginations. Mm. So I'm... I'm trying to get you to be, to, 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 to sort of oil, you know, that machinery a little bit now. Thank you so much for being on the Brown Print. I appreciate you. What was the education? I'm, I'm writing notes. I got a lot of notes. I can't, I don't even know where to begin. I appreciate the Brown Print. Oh man. Thank you. I do. I appreciate the Brown Print. LeVar Burton is such an ambassador for being a storyteller, obviously for acting and, and so much so for the black community. Uh, he represents such a diversity, such a collection of special gifts, and he's been able to share those gifts with us, whether it be acting, reading Rainbow, or his own personal projects. But for me, listening to him today, I had probably a million notes. But what we try to do on The Brown Print at the end of every podcast is give you just something to think about, something to take home, something to digest. And what was evident and clear, his passion is genuine. He said that he has been so successful because his passion is genuine. He's able to identify his gift. At an early age, he knew his gift. Outside of wanting to be a priest and then later saying, I love drama, I love theater, he knew that was going to be his gift to this world. And his gift in the world was to be of service to others. He was going to use his gift to share with you and tell stories 
and help those who can't help themselves and speak for those who are marginalized. And he knew that this was his gift because he found his purpose. And that was it. The universe will support you, but you need to know. He knew. Those are his words. The universe will support you, but you need to know your gift. You need to know your passion. And gosh, that was just absolutely amazing. We all know LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow. And if you don't, you better find out. But what he said about reading really hit me. Imagination. Think about your imagination. Think about dreaming. Thinking about being more. Where does that all come from? And I quote Mr. Burton, chief among your skill sets is reading because it helps your imagination. Chief among your skill set is reading because it helps your imagination. If you don't have imagination, maybe you need to read more. This is a PSA for reading more. So many of us nowadays don't read for pleasure, but just imagine being able to escape to a place that educates you and entertains you. That's right at your fingertips. Man, that's beautiful. He also said, yes, to be successful, you need to make a plan and have a plan. But on the flip side of that plan is the ability to be flexible. A sophomore in college auditioning arguably for the biggest role of his lifetime without even knowing it. He got it. And it had such a cultural impact. I'm referring to Roots. And he was able to be flexible. He was able to understand that with fame will come change, will come strife. Will With fame, there will be change, there will be strife, there will be ups, and there will be downs. But he was flexible. His plan was to go work in New York on Broadway. But he had to be flexible, and thank God he was, because we have the gift known as Roots. And here's a special note for Black History Month. I really wanted to share this. When I asked LeVar Burton if he felt nervous or uncomfortable about being so unapologetic in his Blackness, Meaning, do you ever get nervous using your platform to speak out on what's wrong or what specifically is happening in our country today? He said he's earned the right to speak, and I absolutely agree with that. But more importantly, here is the nugget. Here is the takeaway, especially for Black History Month. He's concerned, but it doesn't paralyze him into non-action. He's concerned that maybe it could interfere with work, but it doesn't paralyze him into non-action. And that is his walk. That is his gift. That is his purpose because he knows it's not for everybody, but it's definitely something we should all think about. I hope you enjoyed this edition of The Brown Print. I have walked away feeling more inspired and more dedicated to what I really truly know my purpose is and why I'm here. I hope it's done the same for you. Talk to you next week. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. 
We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of, not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.